invite you at this time to turn in your pew Bibles to page 1,639 where we find a scripture passage for tonight, Luke chapter 22, verse 54 through 62. And during this Easter season, we have been going through a sermon series entitled Easter Through the Eyes of Peter. And we're looking at that last week of Jesus' life leading up to his crucifixion and resurrection, and the moments in which the gospel writers capture times with Peter. What's going on in Peter's heart? What's going on with Peter's perspective? And seeking to gain insight to the Christian life and to who Jesus is vicariously through Peter's experience. And we come tonight to one of the most famous moments of Peter's journey as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And that is his thrice denial of his dear friend and rabbi and savior. And the reason why this is the passage that we're considering tonight on Good Friday rather than maybe... Some of the words that Jesus said from the cross were a passage in which Jesus is uh, suffering in his death. It's because this is the last recorded moment that we have with Peter until after Jesus' death and his resurrection. And that is to say that Peter, this is his last moment, seeing some of the suffering that Jesus Christ, his Savior, is going through before in his cowardice and in his shame he goes and he hides and only hears word of Jesus' death. So will you read with me? Luke chapter 22, verse 54 through 62. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. But when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and he sat down and sat down together, Peter sat down with him. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. As far as the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word, may he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that by your spirit you would accompany the preaching of your word. You would enlighten our minds, open our hearts, that we might receive in this word the glory of Jesus Christ, beholding it and being transformed by it. To Jesus' name we pray. Amen. J.C. Ryle, in commenting on this particular passage, says, The verses we have now read describe the fall of the Apostle Peter. 
It is a passage which is deeply humbling to the pride of man, but singularly instructive to true Christians. The fall of Peter has been a beacon to the church and has probably preserved myriads of souls from destruction. It is a passage which supplies strong proof that the Bible is inspired and Christianity is from God. If the Christian religion had been the invention of uninspired men, its first first historians would never have told us that one of the chief apostles denied his master three times. Our theme tonight, as we look at this passage, when faced with our sin, we are reminded to cling to the cross. When faced with our sin, we are reminded to cling to the cross. We've got four points. The first is the fearful follower. We find that Peter is following along as Jesus is arrested and taken into uh, the high priest's house. The second is the three denials. And we hear in succinction those three denials from Peter. And then the third point is the Lord looks. And the fourth point is the lessons learned. So let's look at that first point, the fearful follower. Our last sermon, we talked about that arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? And that moment in which Jesus said to Peter, put your sword away. And Jesus is then carried away. He's arrested. He's he's tied up. He's carried away. And this is where we find that he's taken to. But as he's carried away, the plot of this narrative develops in two tracks. The first track is the trial of Jesus. And if you put all the events of these synoptic gospels together, you can kind of gather together the order of these events that are happening. And so what we find out is that what we're doing in this moment is we're zooming in on Peter's denials. But as Peter's denials are going on, you're seeing this mock trial happen, this, this fake trial happen with Jesus, where they're trying to string together these uh, people who are going to testify against him and try to get him to trip up in his words and try to catch him uh, in a lie. So the two, the two tracks are the trial of Jesus, having arrested him, right? They lead him away, and they brought him to the house of the high priest. But the second uh, track of this plot is the tale of Peter. We find that Peter was following at a distance. Peter, unlike the other disciples, decides to follow along, decides to see what's going on, decides to hold on to some fashion of his pride and his arrogance about how he was going to stand by Jesus, how he was going to be there to the very end, that he would go to death for Jesus, he would kill for him, he would live for him, he would do whatever he needed to do, he would go to prison with Jesus. Remember, that's Peter's words. So Peter then becomes the initial focus here. So after they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sits down with them. He sits among them. He's here in a a location in which he can hear the goings-on of Jesus' trial, so to speak. He can be close by his rabbi, his teacher, his friend. And many Christians think that they can hang out close to Jesus but keep their lips sealed and not confess him before men when under pressure. But we're about to find out. If that is the case. So we go to our second point, the three denials. Verse 56, we hear that a servant girl is seated there by him. And in the firelight, she looks closely at him and she recognizes him as somebody that she saw with Jesus. That she saw spending time with Jesus. And she says, this man was with him. There's an identification by a servant girl in the first denial. He denies it, woman. I don't, know, I don't know this man. The second denial, verse 58. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. 
As we read the account in Matthew, we saw that it was another girl. But here, Luke mentions that there was another man who, who recognized Jesus and, and, and confronted him. And the idea that we get here is that this, on the second effort, this girl who first recognized him persisted and that others are now joining in with her. The idea is not that these individuals are asking him one by one as if there's, a, there's an order of events here and everybody gets their turn, but rather that the public pressure is heating up and that Peter's not holding up to it. He's trying to stick close to Jesus while remaining incognito, a, a sort of strange kind of social distancing, if we haven't heard that enough these days. And then finally, the third denial, that an hour later, Another is certain. Certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. His accent betrays him. You're Galilean. You must be with Jesus because Jesus hangs out with Galileans. Jesus is from Galilee, and you're a Galilean, so you must be one of his disciples, right? And Peter replies, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And in fact, in Matthew's account, it says that Peter stooped so low that the increase of his denial came to the point in which he was cursing and swearing. What does that mean, that he was cursing and swearing? Was he given expletives? Was he saying cuss words? No, he was actually saying, if I be lying, God damn me. That's what he was saying. He was invoking curses upon himself. He was saying, if I'm lying about this, then God damn me to hell. That's what he was saying. And he was saying, uh, he was saying the opposite of that, right? He was saying, I swear by God that I'm not lying. So he was taking God's name in vain in order to bolster his lie. Because he was so fearful of what might happen. This is the man who said, Jesus, I'm willing to die for you. I will go to prison for you. But he can't even stand up to a couple of servant people around a fire. Then we see this interesting detail that Luke includes in his narrative. Just as Peter said, his last denial, his third denial, verse 61, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Now, this is a very good verse because depending on how you interpret the look that the Lord gave to Peter, says a lot about who you think Jesus is. Luke doesn't describe the way that Jesus looked at Peter. But if in your mind, this look from Jesus to Peter is a condemnatory look, it's a look that says, how dare you, Peter? How bad can you be, Peter? It's a look of a, a, a disapproving father. One that looks upon Peter and is ashamed. And who you think Jesus is 
is a graceless, angry kind of Savior who's always disappointed in you, who thinks so little of you, who's a parent figure that is always annoyed by your presence and wishes you wouldn't be around to bother them. Is that how you interpret the look that Jesus gave to Peter in this moment? Is that how you initially understand it? Because that is not the kind of look that Jesus gave Peter in this moment. And the look doesn't condemn Linsky in his commentary says, it is debated as to how Jesus could be close enough to look upon Peter at this moment. The best answer is that the temple police were just then leading him from the hall of trial through the open courtyard to some place of detention until he should be wanted again. With his face contused, black and blue from the blows he had received, with spittle still defiling his countenance, Jesus looked upon poor Peter. This is a look which sees Peter. And even as he is in the midst of the hardest moment of his life, Jesus extends compassion to Peter in his lowest moment. Even in this moment, Jesus does not think of himself. but thinks of Peter. So what are some lessons that we can learn? Well, J.C. Ryle, he mentions four lessons that we can learn from this moment of Peter's denials. The first is how small and gradual are the steps which men may go down into great sins. And the first step for Peter was proud self-confidence. Though all men denied Christ, Peter said, I never will. He was ready to go with him to prison and to death. The second step was indolent neglect of prayer. When his master told him to pray in the garden, lest he should enter into into temptation, he gave way to drowsiness and was found asleep multiple times. The third step was vacillating indecision. When the enemies of Christ came upon him, Peter first fought, then ran away, then turned again, and finally followed from afar off. The fourth step was mingling with bad company. He went into the high priest's house and sat among the servants by the fire, trying to conceal his religion and hearing and seeing all manner of evil. The fifth and last step was the natural consequence of all the preceding four. He was overwhelmed with fear when suddenly charged with being a disciple. The snare was around his neck. He could not escape. He plunged deeper into error than ever. He denied his blessed master three times. Ryle says of Peter in this moment, The mischief, be it remembered, had been done before. The denial was only the disease coming to a head. So he says we can learn from this moment with Peter a valuable lesson. Let us be aware of the beginnings of backsliding, however small. We never know what we may come to if we once leave the king's highway. The professing Christian who begins to say of any sin or evil habit, it is but a little one, is in imminent danger. He is sowing seeds in his heart, 
which will one day spring up and bear bitter fruit. And as a, a personal um, um, relation to this concept lately, I've been thinking about how the last few weeks um, in discussions with my wife, I have begun to see a pattern of attitude in my own heart of um, impatience and harshness with my kids. And I, I thought to myself, I don't know what's going on. I, I, I feel that in, in my life everything seems to be going well. And that tends to be the case because for much of my Christian life, I've had one particular sin that I've always struggled with. It is the master sin that I've always struggled with. And what's happened is now that I'm not struggling with that particular sin, I'm not on guard. I'm not aware. I'm not living my life every day as if I'm on the edge or I'm on the verge of possibly falling into sin. I've kind of settled into this um, easiness, settled into this concept of, of going things little by little because for the most part, my life is all right. For the most part, I don't have any crises in my life. I don't have any situations in which I need to be on high alert. I need to be vigilant in prayer. I don't have any situations going on in my life right now where I've got to say, God, God, please help me through this situation right now. And maybe many of you can relate to that. But here's the thing that I thought of today. What if we, what if we, what if we treated every day because we understand the very nature and character of sin in our hearts? as a situation, a crisis in which we are so dependent upon God to give us his grace and his mercy, so dependent upon God each and every day to fill us with the fruits of the Spirit that we might live a life that's in line with Christian values, that we might live a life that reflects Christ. What if every day I wasn't thinking, God, please keep me from these big sins that I'm always worried about or thinking about, but instead I thought, God, Every sin is a big sin. But God, if it's not for your grace, today I'm going to yell at my kids. I'm going to treat them in such a way that makes them feel like they shouldn't be around me, that they don't want to be around me, that they don't know that I love them. And that is a crisis. And how quickly it is if we don't consider our everyday life being so dependent upon God's grace that we can so easily begin to stumble and fall. And before we know it, little by little, a slow fade, we're looking back and we've denied our Savior three times. Second lesson, how far a true believer may backslide. Consider this about Peter. He was a chosen apostle of Christ. He enjoyed greater spiritual privileges than most people in the world. He just received the Lord's Supper. He had just heard that wonderful discourse recorded in the 14th, 15th, and 16th chapters of John, the prayers of Jesus Christ. He had been most plainly warned of his own danger multiple times by Jesus. This is going to happen to you. He had boasted most loudly that he was ready for anything that might come upon him. And yet this very man denies his gracious master. And that repeatedly and after intervals giving him space for reflection, he denies him once, twice, Three times. J.C. Ryle then says, The best and highest believer is a poor, weak creature, even at his best times. 
whether he knows it or not. He carries within him an almost boundless capacity of wickedness, however fair and decent his outward conduct may seem. There is no enormity of sin unto which he may not run if he does not watch and pray, and if the grace of God does not hold him up. When we read the falls of Noah, Lot, and Peter, we only read what might possibly befall any one of us. Let us never presume, let us never indulge in high thoughts about our own strength or look down upon others. Whatever else we may pray for, let us daily pray that we may walk humbly with God. A third lesson, how infinite is the mercy and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. J.C. Ryle states, This is a lesson which is brought out most forcibly by a fact which is only recorded in Luke's Gospel. We are told that when Peter denied Christ the third time and the rooster crowed, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Those words are deeply touching. Surrounded by bloodthirsty and insulting enemies, in the full anticipation of horrible outrages, An unjust trial and a painful death, the Lord Jesus yet found time to think kindly of his poor, erring disciple. Even then, he would have better know that he did not forget him. Even then, he would have Peter know that he did not forget him. Sorrowfully, no doubt, but not angrily, he turned and looked straight at Peter. There was a deep meaning in that look. It was a sermon which Peter never forgot. The love of Christ toward his people is a deep well which has no bottom. Let us never measure it by comparison with any kind of love or man man or woman. It exceeds all other loves as far as the sun exceeds the light from the moon. There is about it a mind of compassion and patience and readiness to forgive sin, of whose riches we have but a faint conception. Let us not be afraid to trust that love when we first feel our sins. Let us never be afraid to go on trusting it after have once believed. No man need despair however far he may have fallen if he will only repent and turn to Christ. If the heart of Jesus was so gracious when he was a prisoner in the judgment hall, we surely need not think it is less gracious when he sits in glory at the right hand of God. Do you understand what Ryle is saying here? He's saying here, if Jesus has love and grace for Peter in this moment, then we can be assured that Jesus has love and grace and patience and understanding for us now that he has been crucified, resurrected, and sits at the right hand of his heavenly Father in heaven. May you know in the midst of your sin that there is a compassionate and loving Savior who looks at you with compassion, with love, with welcome. And then finally, lesson four, how bitter sin is to believers when they have fallen into it and have discovered their fall. Ryle states, this is a lesson which stands out plainly on the face of the verses before us. We are told that when Peter remembered the warning he had received and saw how far he had fallen, he went outside and wept bitterly. He found out by experience the truth of Jeremiah's words. It is an evil thing and a bitter that you have forsaken the Lord. He felt keenly the truth of Solomon saying, The backslider in heart shall be filled with his own ways. Proverbs 14 verse 14. 
No doubt he could have said with Job, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Sorrow like this, let us always remember, is an inseparable companion of true repentance. Here lies the grand distinction between repentance unto salvation and unavailing remorse. Remorse can make a man miserable like Judas Iscariot, but it can do no more. It does not lead him to God. Repentance makes a man's heart soft and his conscience tender. It shows itself in real turning to a father in heaven. The falls of a graceless professor are falls from which there is no rising again. But the fall of a true saint always ends in deep contrition, self-abasement, and amendment of life. That is why it's important, and I think rightful and timely, that we consider this moment with Peter on Good Friday. Because Good Friday has a lot to do with repentance. Good Friday has a lot to do with looking at the cross and seeing our own sin there on the cross. Seeing our own sin that caused the pain and the grief and the suffering that our Savior went through. And it is the mark of a true believer that when we see that cross, when we understand that cross, when we live with the cross before us, we are in a process of continual repentance of our sin. We do not love our sin. We do not embrace our sin. We do not enjoy our sin. We turn in repentance from our sin. We ask again and again to the Lord Jesus to take our sin from us and to renew us in his image. We do not take for granted The cost of our salvation and the cross of Jesus Christ. When faced with our sin, we are reminded to cling to the cross of our Savior because it is on that cross that all our sins were taken away. That the guilt and shame of our sin was punished in Jesus so that it would not have to be punished in us. It is in the cross that Peter, Peter now can live, did live his life free from the shame of his denials. Shaped by the conviction wrought in him for those denials. Always remembering and living out that look that his Savior Jesus gave him in that moment. A look of compassion that embodies, embodies the joy that was set before Jesus when he went to the cross. Because he chose to go to the cross for us. Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ. And Lord, when we are faced with our sin, may we be continuously reminded to cling to the cross where our dear Savior died, where our sins were forgiven. And may we, Lord, not cling to the cross so much that we forget the power of resurrection. May these things go hand in hand in our lives, the putting to death of the old self and the bringing to life of the new. May we know 
And in the cross of Jesus Christ, all our sins have been forgiven. And that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.